Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Okay, well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen. Um, I typically am in Baltimore, but today I'm down in our Richmond office. As always, I like to uh, open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone uh, for your support of Surety Today and for calling in. Uh, we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Uh, we also ask that you like or and or share our uh, Surety Today posts on social media platforms because uh, when you uh, like or share our posts, it lets all the Surety folks that you are connected with see the posts so they can join in. Um, there, are, there are a number of new people, I think, on the call today because we opened up the, uh, the mailing list to a, a broader group we've added in our uh, construction consultant friends, uh, and I know a number of people uh, requested pins. So basically, just a quick overview. What we do is we, we have this call in uh, live, and, and so at the end, uh, there'll be time for questions, and um, we cover all kinds of surety-related topics, um, and sometimes we do interviews with people uh, on various issues uh, relating to construction and surety industry. And then we, um, we record these calls and we post them as podcasts. So uh, you can listen to any one of or all of our prior uh, 67 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere from one of our multiple platforms, uh, the Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, um, as a, on Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, just search for Surety Today. We also have a, a microsite, suretytoday.net, where you can find the uh, recorded episodes as well. So we've done, uh, what did I say, 67 episodes, and we're, we're about uh, 6,500 downloads uh, since we've been, we've been doing it. Uh, as I said, we, we mute the line during the presentation to avoid background noise, and then we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Our episode today is about the Cardinal Change Doctrine. Uh, but before we get started, I feel like we should mention the fact that it's Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, if you forgot, there's still time to get something for your significant other. Uh, and, I, and I wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day. This is a special day for, for my wife and I because on Valentine's Day in 1981, uh, we went on our first date. Uh, I was a junior in high school and she was a sophomore. Uh, I was on the varsity football team and she was a cheerleader. On that first day, it was actually, that date was, is actually a triple date. We went with two other couples, went to an Italian restaurant, and then we went to see the movie My Bloody Valentine, which <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking, picking a movie, going from, you know, marinara sauce at an Italian restaurant to a gory blood fest, but uh, we didn't pick the movie. Neither one of us really liked horror movies. We just wanted to do something. Anyway, we, we continued dating through high school and college and got married in the summer between uh, graduating from college and starting law school in 1987. So 
This is 41 years of dating today and 34 plus years of marriage. Um, my wife is a verified saint for putting up with me for that length of time. Anyway, um, so today, as I say, we're, we're going to focus on uh, the cardinal change doctrine. We uh, will talk about uh, what it is, uh, its history, uh, what it might apply, when it might apply, and uh, some potential limitations to its application. So a cardinal change can provide a defense to a surety and its principle in, in several circumstances. Indeed, uh, I have two matters pending now where we have asserted the cardinal change doctrine uh, as a defense to claims made against the performance bond. In addition, this past October, I gave a presentation uh, to all of the, uh, the underwriters uh, at a top 10 surety company on this doctrine as well. So I thought it would be, be of interest for, uh, for the Surety Today podcast. Uh, as you know, uh, virtually every construction contract has a clause that allows the owner to make changes to the scope of the work. Um, in the federal construction context, uh, such clauses are mandated by the provisions of the FAR. These changes give the owner broad unilateral power to order changes to the work and generally require the contractor to perform the work, even if the contractor disputes or objects to the change. As the Supreme Court has observed, quote, the changes clause allows the government to make unilateral contract modifications without seeking consent from the subcontractor and without being in breach of the contract. But what if those changes ordered are unreasonable and outside of the contemplation of the parties when the contract was entered into? For example, what if the changes double or, or triple the original contract work and price uh, or extend the work double or triple the original contract time? Is the contractor or the surety still bound by the changes clause to perform? The cardinal change doctrine says no. This doctrine can apply to a surety in a number of ways. First, if the surety takes over a project, it may directly face an overly broad change that it may not wish to perform. Second, it can be raised by the, the principal or by the surety through its subrogation rights as a defense uh, to an obligee declaration of default or bond demand. Third, the doctrine can form the basis for claims for extra compensation beyond the contract terms if the principal was forced to perform overly broad change work. In the, the one case where I have used the cardinal change doctrine, the, the principal was declared in default and demand was made upon the performance bond the surety denied the bond claim in part asserting the cardinal change doctrine. In that matter, the original subcontract amount was increased over 400% through a series of change orders that added substantial additional scope, uh, and the surety was not aware of these changes. The increased scope also increased the complexity of the project, thereby raising the level of risk. The project was also seriously delayed with the completion date being extended by four years. So we felt that this was a, a, a situation ripe for the cardinal change defense. Uh, cardinal change, of course, is, is a subset of a, of a larger surety defense known as material alteration. In, in a material alteration, the surety can seek a discharge because of the increased risk added to the, bond, added to the bonded contract. Now, typically, in material alteration, it's asserted when there's been an overpayment, the contract funds are improperly or prematurely paid out, but it also includes any obligee actions that materially increase the surety's risk without the surety's consent. So later, um, later in the year, we'll do a Surety Today episode uh, based on, on just discussing the material alteration doctrine, but today we're just looking at the cardinal change. 
So what is a, what is a cardinal change? The Court of Federal Claims um, back in 71, I think even earlier, stated that the purpose of the cardinal change doctrine is to provide a breach remedy uh, for contractors who are directed by the government to perform work which is not within the general scope of the contract. The cardinal change is one which, because it fundamentally alters the contractual undertaking of the contractor, is not comprehended by the normal changes clause. The Federal Circuit Court of Appeals put it this way, quote, a cardinal change occurs when an alteration in, in the work is so drastic that it effectively requires the contractor to perform duties materially different from those originally bargained for, unquote. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals phrased it as, a cardinal change requires the contractor to perform duties that are materially different from those originally bargained for. In other words, a change is cardinal when it cannot be said to have been within the contemplation of the parties when they entered into the contract. Thus, by definition, a cardinal change is a change so profound that it is not redressable under the changes clause of the contract and renders the party directing the change in breach. So in other words, a cardinal change is, is such an unreasonable and, and, and unanticipated change that it actually constitutes a material breach of the contract by the party ordering the change. Because a cardinal change is a material breach, it has the effect of freeing the contractor of its obligations under the contract, including obligations under the dispute clause to continue performance during the pendency of the dispute. Indeed, there's, there's case law out there holding that where a cardinal change has been found, the contractor was excused from contract provisions such as no damage for delay clauses, waivers, and claim notification provisions. Thus, when a, a cardinal change occurs, the performing party is legally justified in refusing to perform the change. However, one of the problems with this defense is that there's no automatic or easy formula which can be used to determine whether a change or changes is beyond the scope of the contract. Initially, uh, in deciding whether a single change or series of changes is a cardinal change, many courts observe that one must examine the work done in compliance with the changes and ascertain whether it is essentially the same work that the parties bargained for when the contract was awarded essentially taking a, a literal approach to the doctrine. So you'll, you'll have some cases where the court will say, uh, yeah, there, there were a lot of changes and delays and impacts, but, but you were contracted to build a tunnel and you built a tunnel. So um, there, there's a case uh, out of the District of Colorado where the federal district court denied summary judgment in light of uh, unresolved issues of fact concerning whether a two-year delay and a million-dollar increase in cost qualified as significant changes where the contractor, quote, built the same tunnel they originally were hired to build and essentially the same manner and location. So the modern interpretation of the doctrine is, is much more um, expansive than, than, you know, hey, you built the same thing. Um, and so the modern version says that a cardinal change can occur even when there's no change in that final product, uh, like a tunnel is a tunnel, but it is the entire undertaking of the contractor rather than the product to which the courts will look. So unfortunately for contractors and sureties facing a possible cardinal change, there's no reliable method to, to make a contemporaneous determination of cardinality. Instead, the, uh, the determination can only be made uh, by a fact finder analyzing the totality of the circumstances surrounding the change and the 
attempting to avoid the inequitable results. One court noted this dilemma stating the obvious risk faced by a contractor con contemplating the suspension of performance because of an alleged breach by the owner is that the contractor who abandons the work is liable for breach if the abandonment is deemed wrongful. Undoubtedly, the cautious contractor might often proceed under the revised contract because of doubt whether he could invoke the cardinal change doctrine. So courts are, are recognizing that it's, it's a, puts you in a difficult position to try to, to argue, well, this is a cardinal change and we're walking off the job. But, uh, but, but a lot of these courts uh, will allow you to, to perform the work and then seek uh, damages at the end instead of having to walk off the job. But the doctrine allows you to do that if you feel like you've got the strong enough uh, circumstance. So in, in Becho, Inc. Uh, versus U.S., the Court of Federal Claims gave some guidance concerning the cardinal change doctrine. It said that, quote, while there's no precise calculus for determining whether a cardinal change has occurred, the courts have considered inter alia the following factors. One, whether there is a significant change in the magnitude of work to be performed. Two, whether the change is designed to provide a totally different item or drastically alter the quality, character, nature, or type of work contemplated by the original contract. And three, whether the cost of the work ordered greatly exceeds the original contract cost. So the Court of Federal Claims in Wonderluck Contracting similarly observed that there is no exact formula for determining the point at which a single change or a series of change must be considered uh, to be beyond the scope of the contract and necessarily in breach of it. Each case must be analyzed on its own facts and in light of its own circumstances, giving just consideration to the magnitude and quality of the changes ordered and their cumulative effect on the project as a whole. While these uh, more modern cases addressing cardinal change broaden its application, the lack of a clear standard or bright line rule makes it difficult to look at a given situation and, and definitively determine if the cardinal change doctrine will be upheld uh, by the ultimate trier of fact. So the history of this doctrine is that um, it, orig it originated in the federal contract law. The, the early cases uh, when the doctrine was being formed all involved suits brought by contractors against the United States government and the Court of Federal Claims. It had been recognized that the doctrine, in part, was created as a check on the government's ability to circumvent the competitive bidding process by ordering drastic changes beyond those contemplated in the contract. So while contractual changes clauses you know, permit broad changes, the changes clause does not authorize a modification beyond the scope of the contract, which would violate applicable, applicable procurement law. Thus, the government cannot award a contract for the construction of one road under the competitive bidding procurement laws and then order the changes clause uh, under the changes clause of that contract require the contractor to build a second road and avoid the competitive bidding process for that second road. Further in creating this doctrine, um, the courts have recognized that because of the broad nature of the changes clause, the power of the owner or contractor, be it a federal agency or a private developer, or private contractor, to order changes is subject to abuse and misuse. Thus, the cardinal change doctrine was created as an equitable remedy to allow a contractor where the owner or, or, or other contractor has abused its power to assert a material breach of contract, alleging that the changes ordered exceed the reasonable expectation of the parties. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, let's, let's look about where or talk about where this doctrine applies. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the doctrine began in the federal courts, but it has since been adopted 
uh, in many state courts around the country. Further, while the doctrine um, originated in government procurement matters, it has been recognized in private projects as well. In one case, for example, the opposing party argued that the doctrine was limited to just government contracts. However, the court stated, quote, this position, however, ignores the essential similarity of public and private construction contracts with regard to the mechanism for unilaterally ordering of changes by the party for whom the work is being performed and concerns about misuse or overuse of that unilateral authority. These features of any contract for construction are the central focus of the cardinal change doctrine. Thus, the court concluded this broad principle has been recognized by state courts as well as federal tribunals in private as well as public contract settings, unquote. In uh, L.K. Comstock, Comstock and Company versus Beacon Construction out of the Eastern District of Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky Federal Court undertook a survey of state courts applying the cardinal change doctrine either explicitly or implicitly, uh, and, and the Comstock Court pointed out cases in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Arkansas, Indiana, and Oklahoma that had all uh, adopted the, um, the cardinal change doctrine on a state level. Uh, the Comstock Court also um, concluded that, quote, in, in summary, a number of courts in decisions based upon state law have applied the doctrine of cardinal change, while it may not always bear the name cardinal change and may or may not be clearly borrowed from federal, federal procurement law, the core theory that when an owner orders changes beyond the scope of the work agreed to be performed by the contractor is entitled to damages in some form for breach has been widely recognized. The result is the same. The party performing the work is entitled to seek a remedy outside the contract for the reasonable value of the work performed. Well, now, while the cardinal change doctrine has received uh, wide acceptance, it's not uh, universally accepted. Uh, for example, the, the federal court out of the Northern District of Ohio, uh, sitting in diversity and interpreting Ohio law, held that the Ohio Supreme Court would not recognize the cardinal change doctrine. The court reasoned that Ohio courts consistently refuse to allow recovery in quasi-contract where an express contract governs the subject matter of the dispute. The federal court in, in Mississippi refused to recognize a claim based on cardinal change uh, for essentially the same reasons as did a court in um, a federal court in New Jersey. Uh, as with so many issues like this, uh, with these kinds of doctrines, you, you'll need to check the applicable jurisdiction to determine if the cardinal change doctrine is recognized uh, in your particular matter. So one question that, that a surety might have regarding the cardinal change is, you know, does it apply to the surety? Can sureties rely on it? And the answer is yes. There are several courts that have specifically acknowledged the surety's prerogative to raise the cardinal change doctrine as a defense. Courts in Colorado, Tennessee, New York, Florida, and Hawaii have all analyzed the doctrine in the surety context. And um, we'll, post, uh, we'll post the white paper uh, after this uh, presentation, and, and you can see the cases there. Uh, so let's look at let's look at some examples of cardinal changes to give you a sense of of you know what we're talking about with this doctrine. Uh, the first case is sort of the the classical cardinal change scenario where you have the government ordering a change to construct a whole different um, additional facility. In this case um, also involved a surety and was decided under state law. In uh, Hartford Casualty Insurance Company versus City of Marathon, uh, the City of Marathon was undertaking significant construction to implement a new water treatment plant for the um, for this uh, plan overall plan for the city and the surrounding area. 
Marathon uh, awarded a contract to the contractor to build a treatment plant designated as plant number three. Subsequently, uh, the city issued a change order to that contract requiring that the contractor construct uh, plant number seven as well. Um, now, plant number seven <coughs> was based on separate plans and specifications, uh, was to be constructed five and a half miles away on a completely different site. As the court observed, this was not a change order that merely extended or altered the specifications, the timeline, or the cost. This was a change order that ordered the building of a second treatment plant. Marathon argued that despite the difference in location, the, the plant uh, seven change order was not authorizing a separate project under the contract because uh, the plain language of the underlying contract contemplated changes and plant, the plant three project and plant seven they were interrelated because they were both part of Marathon's larger, larger water treatment plan. The court, the court rejected that argument uh, and stated that, taken to its logical extreme, the argument would permit Marathon to issue change orders to include the entirety of the seven treatment plant uh, plants under the under the one contract, and in turn obligate Hartford to bond additional millions of dollars without constructing or without being able to assess the risk. The court noted. But the original contract price was for $2 million to construct Plan 3. The Plan 7 change order came at an additional cost of $2.9 million, an increase of over 144% from the original contract sum. After reviewing all the factors, the court held that the Plan 7 change order was a cardinal change to the underlying construction contract. The court also held that the facts demonstrated a significant and potentially unbounded increase in risk so as to prejudice and injure Hartford as the surety. As a result, the court concluded that pursuant to the Cardinal Change Doctrine, Hartford was not obligated to bond the plant number seven change order. Now, in this next case, we see the application of the Cardinal Change in a private project where um, the same project was built, but the manner of performance was dramatically altered. The case is J.A. Jones Construction Company versus Lehrer McGovern Bovis uh, out of uh, Nevada. In, in the Jones case, the overall physical characteristics of the work changed very little, so the central issue was whether the entirety of the changes and impacts on the contractor's work was so extensive as to force the contractor to perform work beyond the confines of the contract's changes clause. Jay Jones was awarded uh, the contract to install structural concrete at the Sands Exposition Center expansion in Las Vegas, Nevada. Jones' original bid amount was $8.4 million. In order to reduce the bid amount, the owner agreed to, prefer, to perform various site preparation tasks and to streamline other tasks, <coughs> excuse me, to shorten by about half the time needed for Jones to complete its concrete construction, thus reducing uh, Jones' labor material, equipment, and overhead costs. Now, both parties made concessions and ultimately agreed that Jones would perform the work for $7.4 million. Because of the agreed-upon site preparation and streamlined activities, Jones agreed to shorten milestones as well. However, these milestones were eventually exceeded by some eight months because of changes by the owner to the work, obstructions, hindrances, and inefficiencies that rendered Jones's work more difficult to perform, more time-consuming, and more costly. The owner essentially, after the work began, failed to provide any of the site conditions that it said it would provide and upon which Jones agreed to lower its bid. Uh, Jones asserted that out of its $7.4 million bid, it expected to capture $1.9 million in overhead and profit, leaving $5.5 million in anticipated costs. 
The actual cost, according to Jones, totaled over $8.8 million. And additionally, Jones' Jones's expert testified that about $4 million, or 62% of the Phase I work value, was incurred because of changes. Jones was paid um, $1 million for some of that changed work during the delay. Uh, and at trial, it was awarded another $1.1 million, but it still um, filed an appeal because it was seeking about $5 million in damages. On appeal, the, the Nevada Supreme Court ruled that a cause of action based on the cardinal change doctrine was permissible under Nevada law and that Jones was entitled to assert a cardinal change claim. The court reversed the dismissal and the case was remanded uh, for a new trial. In this next case, uh, a cardinal change resulted from a failure to provide adequate design drawings. In Westinghouse Electric Corp, the plaintiffs subcon subcontracted with Westinghouse to construct and assemble cooling pods for military electronic countermeasure devices. Westinghouse delayed several months in supplying uh, the plaintiff with source control drawings, uh, which are similar to construction drawings. The source control drawings would have specified dimensions, tolerances, and like uh, construction drawings would greatly facilitate the subcontractor's efficient performance. But due to the lack of these drawings, plaintiff was required to make constant design revisions and it incurred substantial additional costs trying to overcome these deficiencies and, and, and trying to maintain the tight completion schedule. The court examined the effect of Westinghouse's delay in supplying the drawings and how that Westinghouse imposed a cardinal change upon the plaintiff. According to the court, the failure to provide those drawings fundamentally altered the nature of the plaintiff's undertaking. Having the drawings to work from was the basis of the plaintiff's bargain. Plaintiff was entitled to the, the ease of working from a single source of information and to the facilitation of incorporating otherwise disruptive changes that come from having such a source or a baseline. On a contract with a tight delivery schedule, the source control drawings became critical and fundamental going to the heart of the vendor's undertaking. So um, you can see that the cardinal change doctrine has been used in a, in a number of, of circumstances other than just, you know, oh, you were ordered to, to build a second treatment plant. Uh, one case, uh, the last case I'll talk about here is uh, Edward Martin. Uh, the plaintiff was working on the construction of an aircraft maintenance hangar when the structure collapsed, causing substantial damage to equipment and work already completed. Following the, the collapse, the plaintiff under protest uh, cleaned up the debris and reconstructed the hangar as directed by the government. The plaintiff then brought a claim for breach of contract, asser asserting that the government specifications had been defective, that the structure collapsed due to the defect, and the plaintiff was ordered to reconstruct the hangar, which resulted in increased costs of $3.7 million. The court found that considering the sheer magnitude of reconstruction work caused by the alleged defective specifications, a cardinal change had occurred. Therefore, because the reconstruction work had not been bargained for when the contract was awarded, the plaintiff's breach of contract was not redressable under the contract's changes clause. Now, there are, um, you know, you'll, you'll read through the cases, and, and like the ones that I talked about uh, a little bit ago, where they, where they said you can't have uh, quasi-recovery when you've got an existing express contract. There are some defenses that you'll run into when you do the research and you see uh, one of them is, is, you know, it's sort of contrary to, to you know, to uh, what we've talked about in some of these other cases and, and, re and basically common sense, but it, some courts will hold that if uh, the party has entered into change orders and, and agreed to perform the work in, in, in a written change order that 
that the cardinal change no longer applies. And so they would try to hold, uh, some of these courts would try to hold the party to, to basically walking off the job. That's all your, that's all your remedy is uh, under some of these uh, holdings. And so you've got to be, you know, you've got to be aware of, of, of that, that that's out here. Uh, actually, here's one, uh, Kalana Shipyard versus United States out of the Eastern District of Virginia. The court found that a cardinal change did not occur under contract for ship repair when new growth work was added to a specification package and the parties entered into 46 contract modifications. Although the court noted that the growth work exceeded the plaintiff's expectation, the court explained, the quote, plaintiff has not satisfactorily established that the work performed was materially different from that specified in the contract. Despite the difficulties encountered, a contract to repair a ship remained a contract to repair a ship, and the modifications indicate that these changes were clearly redressable under the contract. Had the changes been so profound that they were not redressable, it is unlikely that the parties would have been able to negotiate 46 bilateral contract modifications. I mean, that's just, that just uh, you know, totally turns the cardinal change doctrine on its head. Uh, of course, you could enter into the contract, and of course, you could find a way to do the work and bring in other subcontracts. The point is, it's beyond what the contract originally contemplated. Anyway, I think the Virginia court got that wrong. Uh, in, in Watt Plumbing, Air Conditioning Electric versus Tulsa Rig Reel Manufacturing out of Oklahoma, the plaintiff was an electrical subcontractor in a project uh, to construct a new hospital wing. Although the parties adhered to the contractually required written change order process uh, at the completion of the project, the plaintiff subcontractor sued for quantum merit recovery based on a theory of uh, cardinal change. Rejecting the claim, the Supreme Court of Oklahoma said it's axiomatic that by mutual assent, parties to an existing contract may subsequently enter in, into a valid contract to modify the former contract, provided there's consideration for the new agreement. An alteration of a contract cannot constitute a breach of contract because it comes, becomes a part of the contract. The contract as altered is the agreement between the parties. So again, just sort of uh, not really recognizing the full extent of the cardinal defense. Cardinal change defense. So on the other hand, there's a number of decisions out there that have recognized that a cardinal change is not barred by the fact that some or all of the change work at issue is covered by executed change orders. Uh, the fact that a party may have sought, released, or otherwise compromised the claim um, um, under, under a contract's equitable adjustment clause or other remedial clauses would not necessarily, at least in these courts, operate as a bar to claims for relief outside the contract. And so in the paper that we'll post uh, later, you'll, you'll see some of the contracts there. And of course, we've already talked about some of those contracts where changes were entered into and the party was still entitled to assert a claim based on cardinal change. Um, another thing, in addition to the, the change orders, entering in change orders, you gotta watch out for uh, releases, of course, releases and waivers um, that are signed after uh, work is being performed that, that could that could result in uh, waiving or releasing the um, cardinal change defense that you might have. Uh, there are cases going both ways on this. Some will say, yeah, that, that's a release. Some will say, no, that's not a release. Um, so again, uh, as with so many of these things, you've got to look at the jurisdiction that you're in and see how the courts are treating these issues. Um, so we're out of time here, so I'm going to go ahead and close us out. Um, and I wanted to, um, let's see, before we open up the lines, uh, I want to let everybody know that the next surety today will be on Monday, uh, March 14th, of course, at 1230. 
Um, there are a number of events coming up in the surety world. So the, uh, the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Luncheon, the next one will be March 16th at, uh, um, at Maggiano's in Philadelphia. The Southern Surety Claims Conference will be held on April 27th through the 29th in um, beautiful Clearwater, Florida. Uh, the ABA FSLC Spring Meeting will be held on May 5th and 6th in Hilton Head, South Carolina. That's going to be fun. I'll be speaking at that uh, along with Nina Durante with uh, Liberty. Um, so thank you to everyone for joining us today and um, I look forward to uh, speaking with you all again next month and let me open up the line here. All right, so the, uh, the lines open up for any questions that anyone might have. Hi, Bob Labatt. A lot of times in uh, bond forms you see language saying that uh, the surety waives uh, notice of any changes. Um, I usually try and limit it by, you know, putting in except for cardinal changes. Um, but what do you see as the interaction between that kind of language and what you've been discussing today? Yeah, Bob, thanks. That's a good question. I, I had to deal with that exact thing. I mean, that, had, that language is in a lot of bond forms. And there are a couple of cases out there that, that say that, that, that waivers in the contracts or in the bond forms don't apply in a cardinal chain situation. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can point to those. And basically, the, you know, the, the theory is that, yeah, you're agreeing to waive, you're agreeing to waive changes and, and increases in the contract, but that's on a reasonable contemplated basis. So these cardinal changes are outside of the realm of reasonableness. So therefore, they're not covered by that waiver. And, and there's, a, there's a court case that, that says that, and there's some, um, you know, there's some authority uh, uh, where people have written that, that these, these types of waivers don't apply in the abnormal situation of a cardinal change. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I and again, that. Yeah, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll post this paper, and I think we, we hit on that in some of the parts of the paper. Anybody, anything else? Well, happy Valentine's Day to everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you in March. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.